But for me, it started that, that very first day in India was I wasn't compelled to respond because I saw the darkness. Because after I saw the darkness, I just wanted to tap out. I just wanted to go home. I didn't want to see another red light area. Mm. I was compelled to respond because I saw the hope. I saw the girls who were going to college. And, who are, and so for us, the reason we do something is because we fundamentally believe there is hope. We believe we can see radical transformation. We believe we can see the end of slavery as we know it. My guest today is none other than the incredible Jeremy Valorand, president and CEO of Rescue Freedom International. Did you know that you can buy a slave for a hundred bucks? That's the cost, the average cost of a slave around the globe. Did you also know that approximately 80% of trafficking involves sexual exploitation? Did you know that there are approximately 30 million slaves in the world today? This is not the 1800s. This is today, today in the world, 30 million slaves. 600 to 800,000 people are trafficked across international borders every year. 80% of those are female and half are children. That's according to the U.S. State Department, which is why the work that Jeremy and his team and the partners all over the globe at Rescue Freedom, such important work. Right now, there are 481 people currently receiving restorative care through the work at Rescue Freedom. These are people formerly sex-trafficked humans. Total, 49,138 people have been helped through trainings, prevention efforts, and advocacy. They are currently working in 11 countries. We're going to work through so much in this podcast. This was one of my favorites. Jeremy is an amazing individual who saw something wrong and gave a damn about it. Precisely the kind of people we are trying to champion on this show. And there's really nothing special about him. I mean, I love I love Jeremy, but there's nothing special about him. He just responded to a call. He responded to a need uh, in an overwhelming way. And the product, the fruit of that response is Rescue Freedom International. I'm so excited for you to get to know Jeremy, for you to become aware of Rescue Freedom if you're not already. I would love for you to come out of this conversation and find ways to partner with them. They're doing incredible work. Without further ado, my name is Nick Lapara. This is the Let's Give a Damn podcast, chapter 40 of the Let's Give a Damn podcast. And this is my conversation with Jeremy Valorand, president and CEO of Rescue Freedom. Let's go. Jeremy, it is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Super excited to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so for everyone, a little bit of context for everyone last night. So this is the end of November. Actually, not really the end of November. What are we? November 19th right now? Yeah, 19th. So yeah. last night, Jeremy Valorand, CEO and founder. Is that your title? Yeah. Is that good? Yeah, it works. Of Rescue Freedom here in Nashville. We did a fundraiser dinner. It was fantastic. And now the next morning... He's recovering from that, from all the amazingness that was last night. And uh, we're sitting in his hotel room and we're going to talk for a little bit. So I'm so excited Love to it. have you here. My pleasure. Thank you for joining me. We're going to talk Climb for Captives. We're going to talk Rescue Freedom. We're going to talk pornography. We're going to talk a bunch of stuff that I'm excited to get your perspective on. You have a lot. I was reminded last night of how much 
you have to offer in this space because yeah, just your experience and how you encountered these things and now what you've done to give a damn about this issue that you're so passionate about. So I'm super excited to dig into all that, but I want to get some context for how you even became the person you are, right? There's, there are people, there are circumstances, there are things that influence who we become, right? So take me back as far as you want to go or not as far as you want to go. Just give me some context for and bring us to the point where you were in India and you were faced with some really crazy things that yeah. changed yeah. your life, essentially. Yeah. So take me from how, however far you want to go back to that point. All right. Well, let's go all the way back to the beginning. Let's do uh, it. Well, so just a little bit of context. So I was a small town kid, grew up in a small town in Washington State, about an hour from Seattle in the foothills of the Cascade Mountains. And I grew up with two sisters. I had an older sister and a younger sister. And growing up, my dad had a job that required him to travel a lot. And for some reason, when I was a little kid, I'll never forget, my dad used to sit me down and he would say to me before he left town for a trip, he'd say, you know, Jeremy, you're the man of the house while I'm gone. Hmm. And that means that you have to you know, take care of your mom, treat her with respect, make sure you listen well, and you got to watch out for your sisters. And when I'm gone, it's your job to, you know, to take care of the house. And there was something about that, even as a little kid that I was like, okay, you know, I could be like bickering with my sisters and all this, but I felt like, oh, when he's gone, I got to like, yeah. I got to just be like a gentleman and be extra put together. But I'll never forget one of the first times when he was gone and I was, I don't know, somewhere between like five and seven years old. And I heard a noise downstairs after everyone went to bed. Mm. So I was like, oh no, okay. It's a, I'm the man of the house. I got to so, five or six. You know, so I like go down and find the most intimidating piece of cutlery I can find. And I checked all the windows and doors. And of course it was my imagination. Um, there was no, no intruder, but there was something ingrained in me from a, the time I was a kid. And again, having two sisters being the middle child of kind of this protector instinct of, you yeah. know, part of what it means. And my parents ingrained that into me as a kid from a faith perspective as well as a as part of what it means to live out our faith is to protect those who can't protect themselves, mm. protect those who are vulnerable to serve those. And so we had, even when I was young, we had a family of five Russian refugees that came and moved in with us for mm. a while. And wow. my parents didn't have a ton of resources at the time. And they had three kids. And then this family with of five. So they had three kids move into our house. They didn't speak a word of English and it was total pandemonium, but it just, for me was like, okay, this is, this is what life is supposed to look like. This is what sort of our faith as a family, how it expresses itself is you just, if you have the means to help. So if we didn't have a ton of money to be giving to international NGOs or nonprofits or humanitarian causes, but we had a house. So let's take them in. Um, so that was sort of ingrained into my my upbringing is when you have the means to act, you act. Hmm. But nothing really happened with that for for quite a while. I you know went went to college and traveled around the world. And um, growing up in a small town, I wanted to get out as soon as I could and just see the world. And so I kind of pursued opportunities to travel. And a few years after school, I ended up moving to Washington D.C. and was working there. And and then in 2008, I had a opportunity to go to India. And I often joke with, with my friends when they ask about like, how did this begin? Assuming that it was some great noble beginning. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, well, actually I, I got to go to India and it had nothing to do with humanitarian purpose. It was like, I love 
culture. You want to travel and see a new yeah, place. And exactly. And I love curry and culture. And, and same, so, same. and I had frequent flyer miles. And so, you know, so I went to India and, but I went with a friend of mine who had spent part of his childhood there and he wanted to go visit some of his favorite childhood places. And, and then at the tail end of our trip, he said, Hey, I have these friends that have been working in India for 45 years and they're this amazing couple and they've given their lives to help rescue kids from trafficking. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what do you mean rescue kids from trafficking? Like, he's like, well, they, they actually help get kids out of brothels. I'm like, wait, what? I had never really thought about human trafficking and never thought about kids in brothels. And so he said, well, let's spend our last, last day with them before we fly back to the States. And so we got picked up on like a Friday night, late at night by this couple in Mumbai. And they drove us into Kamatapura, which at the time was one of the, if not the largest red light district in the world. They estimate, there's some different estimates, but in its heyday, um, the estimates have ranged between like 50,000 and 70,000 women and children in sexual slavery in 11 square blocks. Oh, wow. Um, so, I, I mean, they told me that and it's like, wait, that, what that, I mean, that was, I can't even comprehend that. Yeah. That was like 15 times the population of my hometown. And that's the number of women and children in sexual slavery in 11 square blocks. And so I had no paradigm to wrap my head around that. And so they drove us to that red light district and what I saw um, horrified me and kind of changed my world forever. So that was, that was the start. Yeah. So Western Washington, small town yeah. kid, uh, parents that definitely ingrained kind of this give a damn, you know, sense into you, but there weren't many, like, like I find a lot in America, there's just not a lot of opportunities to, unless you go and look for them and really like seek them out, you can have that. But what do you how does that play out? How do you actually implement that into your like normal life, right? You're a kid. Yeah. You live in a great place that there's not many needs, at least not visibly. And, yeah. And so then you get to, you know, out of college, right? Yeah. So this is post-college. Yeah, post-college. 2008. How old are you then? So 2008, I'm like 26. How old are you now? So uh, 35. Okay. So 34. Yeah. I'm 34. So yeah, I was, yeah. I was 25 okay, in 2008. Yeah. That's yeah. when I got married. So yeah. So, and that's when you went to India, still thinking like, we're going to have a hell of a time. We're going to yeah. go eat curry. We're I'm gonna, like the best non-bread, non-bread ever. Yeah, it's the best. Um, and then you get hit with this, this reality. This was probably a big pivotal uh, moment in your life, right? Where things that you had learned from you when you were a kid about how to care for people, like these were all just manifesting themselves. Like, how did you deal with it at the time? What were your... What was your emotional journey during that like few day period where yeah. you went to eat curry and then you found out that there were tens of thousands of women and children being trafficked right around you? Like, yeah. well, how did you process through that? That's overwhelming. Yeah, it was. So that first night driving into this red light district and the first thing I remember seeing was a, a sea of taxis, kind of the main lane through this red light area. And there was taxis all leaving, like a line of only taxis all lined up back to back packed full with women and young girls. So we're driving into the red light district and the streets are packed with people. So you're just slowly inching. So we're one of the few cars driving into the red light area and there's hundreds and hundreds of taxis streaming out to go to all these hotels. And I remember at one point we were at a standstill and three feet window to window is one of the taxis is stopped. They're going, we're coming. And I'm just looking out the window and it's like, I lock eyes with one of these girls looking as she's going 
and I could just see the lifelessness. Like it was like just emptiness, void of That's just crazy. no emotion. And I got, honestly, my first reaction, I wish I could say my first reaction was like compassion. And we gotta you go. know, my first reaction was like fury. I was angry. I was like looking at all these yeah, men yeah. and this injustice and these perpetrators. And my first reaction was honestly anger. And we drove through and they're telling us these horrific stories of exploitation. And after 10, 15 minutes kind of making our way and you just see these men walking and they grab it, they pick the girl of their choice and they disappear down this dark alleyway. I just honestly was like, I'm, I'm out. I don't, I don't want to see this. Like, I don't, I didn't know this was happening and I don't really want to know that it's happening. Cause honestly, I don't, what are we going to do about it? this? Seems so hopeless. Right. And so, so we went back to the hotel that night and I was just frustrated and angry and heartbroken. And, and then they said, well, you know, we're going to, we'll pick you up in the morning. And I was like, honestly, I don't know if I want to go like again with you guys in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. And, I don't like where you take me. Yeah. And they said, well, we're going to see the other side of the story hmm. and we're going to go visit some of the homes with these women and children. And my first thought was like, I don't know if I have the emotional energy for this. Like, I don't know that I want to see. And part of it was that in the face of that darkness, I think something within me actually didn't believe that there was like hope after mm. that. Like, yeah, how do you fix you know, that? That just yeah, seems it's so like overwhelming. That kind of trauma, that kind of exploitation. And they had been telling us these stories of how these kids end up there. And oh, usually they're sold by a family member or these. And I'm just like, oh, man, how does a kid who's sold by their own mother like recover? And I think it was part of it was somewhere inside of me. I didn't think there was hope. Um, so they pick us up in the morning and they drive us a couple hours outside the city. And the first home we stop at is a, ki a home for kids under the age of 12 who are HIV positive. And they're telling us this as we pull up and I'm just like, honestly, I do not want to get out of this van. Like, I don't want to go see these kids because it's probably going to be depressing and hopeless and what do I have to offer them? And we walked in and these kids just came running and they were hmm. full of hope and joy and life. And they were singing and dancing and grabbing our hands and you know wanting to teach us the Indian version of patty cake. And I was in total shock about the life and the joy and the hope that I saw in their eyes. And I, mm, I mean, it, wow. it actually, like, I kind of paused and was like, okay, the world, like there's something at work in the world that's different than anything I thought. And I, you know, I, like I mentioned, I grew up in kind of a faith context that talked about these big themes like redemption and restoration and this idea that like hope is possible. And, and I, I thought I believed it, but I realized over that, you know, after driving through the darkness of a red light area and then pulling up to the home thinking I was going to meet these kids who had no soul left in them after years of exploitation or abuse. And then when I saw the life and the vibrancy, I thought, man, there, there's a hope that's bigger than anything I ever imagined. Wow. Um, so it kind of awoke something within me. Um, well, that probably changed your perspective from the night before where you're like, there's no hope. Yeah, absolutely. You're like, oh, actually, there might be a solution to yeah. this. But those kids were pretty young. And so, you know, we were playing games with them and it was, and I kind of, we left that home and I was like, wow, that's, that's unbelievable. Yeah. And then they said, okay, well now we're going to go to the home for the high school girls. And so then I'm thinking, well, maybe these ones are going to be the ones that are really traumatized because they were a little older or maybe they remember it more. So we go in and these three, you know, like 16, 17, 18 year old girls walk up. And they kind of just walk right up to me all confident and they stick out their hands and they say their names and they're like, what's your name? And mm. 
I just was like, whoa, these girls just seem confident. You and think you'd bold. seem like cowering in the yeah, corner. Yeah, like, like there's no, interact. they're not intimidated to walk up to a strange male they've never met before and just assert their identity and say, this is who I am. And they start asking me questions. And it was amazing just to see that, okay, wait a second. These girls are, these are smart, confident, and capable girls. And they start telling me what they're studying. And one wants to be a nurse, and an accountant. And that was sort of as I spent the next hour with those high school girls and began to hear about their dreams and ambitions, that was the moment where I felt like, okay, now it's on me to respond mm. because they're telling me that they have hopes, that they have dreams, that they have something that they want to do with their lives. And like they know that somebody's got to help make that possible. Like they're old enough to know that they live in a house that's paid for by yeah. donors. And so they're telling me this, and as I'm hearing it, I'm beginning to hear a sort of, you know, it's like the voice of my parents saying, like, if you have the means to act, you act. And I'm like, okay, I have to act. Like, I have to do something, but I don't know what it says, is. To whom much is given, much is required, right? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And so this, you know, I'm just, I'm just thinking through, like, okay, man, I want to do something. Um, Real quickly, this is a a relevant rabbit trail, but it is a rabbit trail nonetheless. But you said something earlier that I wanted to just hear if you've had to encounter this in a bigger way. So you talked about, you mentioned, you know, how, how do these kids recover knowing that their mom or their dad or their parents or somebody, that one of their loved ones sold them into this. Have you had the opportunity to speak with these families? Because I, I've seen this in the adoption world, Right. Like these traffickers will approach these people that have tons of need, right? And they'll promise them, they'll sell them a bill of goods yeah. that never ends up coming to, to fruition, right? It's not like, maybe sometimes it is, and I'm sure I'm sure this is the case and this that's evil, but so many times it's done with this good intention from the parent's side, like we're gonna take your daughter to this school in the big city and she's gonna have good work and we'll send you money back. This is a good, this is a win-win for everyone. Yeah, totally. And then they end up taking them and doing, you know, and this happens in the adoption world. There's, yep. there's a family that wants to give your kid an education in the big city, and they're like, "Cool, like we can't take care of them. We have too many kids. I can't afford this. Yep. Take them, yep. and we'll see them in four years or yeah. two years or whatever, yeah. and they never see them again, right? Yeah. And, and then the some unsuspecting family from the West says, like, "Oh yeah, we want to adopt this kid." All the while, not knowing that there's an actual parent out there that. So I'm sure this happens in the trafficking world as well, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we see. I think in in every culture, as sort of a general universal rule, it's trafficking preys on the vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. You know what we've seen is while there's certainly circumstances of people from like healthy homes that are you know kidnapped out of their backyard. Like right. that's so far in the absolute minority. Right. Uh, the by and large trafficking and traffickers are preying on vulnerable populations. Yeah. And so in some instances you have parents that are full on complicit. Right. They straight up want the money that they can get yeah. by s selling their daughter to uh, a brothel. Other times mm -hmm. you have parents that are maybe willfully ignorant is they like, they know something doesn't seem right, but it's like, it's easier if they sort of tell themselves like, oh, yeah. well, let's, yeah, let's choose to, this person tells us that they're going to have a great job right? and they're going to take them to the big city. And so great, let's, it's like, they're, they're just sort of appeasing their conscience. 
that you, you see those scenarios. And then you see the other scenarios of parents that are so desperate and they really do hope and believe for the best and they feel like they have absolutely yeah. no options. And so you see that that side you know, play out as well. The challenge is, is for the kid who you know, is typically under the age of 12 or 13 when this transaction happens, they don't necessarily know how to decipher their parents' motivations. And so no, for, the, no. the, for the kid, even if the parent has the best hopes and dreams and thinks that they're do you know that they're doing they're making the sacrifice of like, oh, I'm gonna miss my daughter so much to send them off to go get this education, but it's a, it's my chance to give my daughter something better. Like the kid doesn't know. No, All kid. they know is the, the parent said yes, and next thing they know, they're in a brothel. And so, you know, regardless of the the purity or naivety or maliciousness of whatever the spectrum of the parent's yeah. intent, often the outcome is that the victim feels totally betrayed by the people that and love the most. the parents willingly handed the child over. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, that's always an interesting component in the spectrum of in working with these, you know, these younger girls is the question of what what role and and possibility is there for reconciliation with the family. Yeah. If there is a family in, that is even in the picture. Yeah. So it's a that's you know, it's crazy. an interesting dynamic for yeah. sure. Yeah. So what happened between that trip how much time lapse was there in between that trip and Climb for Captives? And tell us about Climb for Captives. Because two of my friends, uh, at least two of my friends, Jack Morishan yeah. and Brian McCormick, yeah. have both been on climbs, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, I love those guys. Um, but yeah, so tell me, they've they've had nothing but great things. I mean, it's something that they enjoyed physically, but then also the joy that comes from knowing that, oh, we raised X amount of money, way more than we ever thought we could to do this, to do this climb. Yeah. So what happened was, you know, I came back from that trip to India and was back in Seattle and was trying to figure out what in the world to do with that experience of, okay, I saw this horrible nightmare and then I saw this incredible hope and I met these girls and I want to help them somehow. I want to help support them. And I thought, well, you know, and it's a bit of an American probably way of thinking of like, well, the most important thing I can do is raise money because money, you know, that that's, right. that's the biggest need is money. And in a lot of situations, it is one of the biggest, the biggest needs, of course. And so I thought, well, I got to figure out a way to raise money. And so I started telling some of my friends and it was sort of a coincidence um, that I had been trying to convince some of my friends to do a mountain climb with me. So, you know, I grew up, like I mentioned, in the foothills of the Cascade Mountains. So had been around hiking and yeah. climbing and mountaineering so for a long time. And, you know, Seattle, Pacific Northwest, you know, the beautiful mountains everywhere. And and I had some friends that had never had never climbed a mountain. And mountain climbing is one of those things that it's really hard to just like set out one day and be like, I'm going to go climb a mountain. Yeah. I'm going to go buy some crampons and an ice axe and just see if I can make my way to the top of a giant icy crag. And so if you don't have somebody to show you how to do it, it's hard to get into it. And so these friends were really had always dreamed about climbing Mount Rainier, which is the big mountain, you know, on the skyline looking out from Seattle. And it's a kind of one of those quintessential Seattle bucket list things mm. that a lot of people say like one day I'll climb Mount Rainier. And so I had done it before and had convinced a bunch of buddies that we should do it that summer. Well, it just so happened that the only date that we could do it on just from time off and commitments uh, for the summer was on the 4th of July. So we had planned to climb it on the 4th of July. 
and we were all doing these training trips together. And so we had this schedule of like training hikes and activities. And as we were training together, I just started naturally telling these guys about this experience that I had had just five months earlier. And I'm telling them about what I encountered and how it's like gotten inside my head and how I have to feel. I felt like I had to do something about it. And then all of a sudden one day, it was actually only 14 days before our climb. So it was like almost end of June and we were doing our last training climb. And all of a sudden we're like, well, hey, wait a second. If people can do marathons to raise money for cancer research or you know, all these different um, race for the cure, all these different campaigns, yeah. why can't we turn our climb mm. into a fundraiser to help raise money for this issue? And so immediately we're like, oh, of course, that's what we can do. We can let's, so let's create a campaign. So we had 14 days to throw it together. So we decided wow. let's try to raise $14,410, which is $1 for every vertical foot of Mount Rainier in 14 days. And we decided to cl call it Climb for Captives. Again, it was this interesting thing, a bit like my trip to India where I went for the fun of it and I ended up engaging this sure. cause. We weren't, this climb was not a great noble, like we're going to climb to rescue these kids or to help. It was like, no, we want to climb because we're going to go climb a mountain. Yeah. And then it was almost this afterthought of, but hey, let's see if we can use this to engage people. So we blasted it out to everybody we knew on social media and email and instantly saw a reply. I remember like right after I sent it, somebody replied and said, I am all about this cause. Here's a thousand dollars, and it blew wow. my mind. Like wow. I had never really done, you know, fundraising efforts, or and I sent this email out into the the world wide web, and then instantly a, a guy said, "I'm I'm in." Like here's a thousand dollars. It kind of freaked me out because uh, it was like, "Oh man, this is this now, is happening." Yeah, yeah this I gotta, is happening now. We have to um, do it. And so another thing happened that kind of freaked me out is like the next day some press group heard about it. And this journalist emailed me and was like, I've been wanting to learn more about human trafficking. I'd love to do an interview about Climb for Captives. Here's a list of my 20 questions. And I looked at the 20 questions. I was like, I have no idea the answers to like any of these well, questions. Yeah. I don't know anything about human trafficking other than I met these amazing kids that had been rescued. And so of course, wanting to like get the word out about Climb for Captives and raise as much money. I was like, of course I'll do an interview. Yeah. Let's schedule a time. And so I like spent all evening just devouring as much content as I could find, learning about human trafficking. I started calling around friends in Seattle. I got connected to the Seattle police officer who was leading our local vice effort to work with women and children who are trafficked in the city of Seattle. So then all of a sudden I'm like, oh no, this is happening in Seattle. And as I was preparing for this interview, and calling everybody I could that could connect me to any resources and trying to answer, work my way through these 20 questions, I realized like this is way bigger than I thought. And mm. so it kind of opened this other can of worms. And so we did this climb. We raised way more money than we thought we were going to raise. Mm. And then we got some emails from a couple of friends saying, well, when's the next climb? When's the next climb for captives? Yeah, and I was yeah. like, well, what do you mean the next climb for captives? Like this was a one and done. Like we threw this thing together in 14 days. And so we started thinking about, okay, well, maybe we have to do something else. And we sort of accidentally gave birth to this campaign called Climb for Captives. Has it been a yearly thing since then or more yeah. than once a year? Um, kind of both. We, we had a couple years where we, we've like, so we did it a couple years in a row and then we took a year off and we did a couple campaigns in one year. So we've done, 
Man, we've done all the big mountains kind of on the west coast of the United States. A lot of mountain ranges left. Yeah, yeah. Then go we've overseas. Got, well, this year is the, this this uh, next summer, 2018, is the 10 year anniversary of our first oh, wow. time. So we've got a group that's going to be going. Uh, it looks like over to Kilimanjaro. Um, that's amazing. So I, was I think we're going to go inter yeah, intercontinental. Yeah. So, but that was. Do you have Do you have any idea how much you have collectively raised just from the climbs over the last decade? Yeah. So just the climbs alone have raised over eight hundred fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, and amazing. what's been cool with it is it's all this grassroots like it, right. And hundred percent of that goes to the cause. Like we don't, the climbers are all, they just climb the mountain. They, they pay all their, the so that's not like, well, and then half of that pays to get, you know, right, buy, it's like a hundred, $850,000 has come in and gone out the door directly to the work just from people doing mountain climbs that they probably were already going to do. Uh, the other thing that's been amazing is how many people have engaged in the story because a lot of people, when they learn about human trafficking, specifically sex trafficking, it's kind of a hard dinner time conversation, right? Yeah. It's like it's hard to just drop that bomb. How's your burger? Boom. Yeah. Yeah. But when people are training to climb their first big mountain and they've got ice axes and crampons and like that's an easy dinner time yeah. conversation. People are like, "Wait, you're climbing a mountain? Like how do, how does that work? Are there crevasses? Like what does that look like?" And wow, why are you doing it? And then it's like, "Well, actually we're doing it to help rescue kids from human trafficking." It's, it's just natural. sort of like slides yeah. into conversations. People are like, whoa, what's that? Tell me more. And so it's been an amazing way to engage community. But it also sort of started the process that led to Rescue Freedom. Um, you know, I had kept in touch with this amazing couple that I had met in India and connected with some of the homes that they started, but then also started connecting with other homes around the world. And as we were raising money, one of the homes that we raised money for with one of the Climb for Captives ended up having to shut down. Mm. And I was just, I was so heartbroken. But I remember as we, as I began to engage more, realizing of, that finances or there was finances or and, and organizational challenges. And, you know, what we were started to see is like most of the reason that people jump into this work in terms of if you're actually going to be on the front lines of trying to rescue people, which means probably death threats from like organized crime and traffickers and all this. But it typically, if people are doing it, it's because they have huge hearts for these women or these yeah. children and these boys and girls and they're jumping in, but most of them are not, you know, especially around the world where a lot of the places, you know, you could, you'd be hard pressed to find like a PhD trauma therapist in some of the cities where we're working, like in the whole city, let alone in, the little safe house. And so you had these people that were jumping in with huge hearts. And I, and I kind of quickly realized like, wow, they need way more than just financial support. They need organizational like infrastructure and programmatic support. And they need access to the PhD trauma therapist who can help with the actual like brain science behind how do we help these kids heal from trauma and recover. And so we started saying, well, what would it look like to build an organization that could do more than just like fund a safe house that could actually come alongside of them, could find that safe house that's already doing work in a community, but that's barely hanging on. And maybe they've mortgaged their house just to take a few kids in. And what would it look like to bring like a PhD trauma therapist in who specializes in like program design, mm. who could coach them and walk alongside them. And then we could help them with their, their staffing models and their organizational infrastructure and help them build sustainability. And so that's sort of what gave birth to, to Rescue Freedom is gathering a community of people together to say, what would this look like? And getting a lot of input from this, this amazing couple in India that had done this for years and seeing kind of the needs of, you know, it's so much more than just 
money. It's, yeah. it's like we saw, and, and we saw other people trying to do that, you know, that again, that, that sort of American reaction where, you know, if let's raise money, let's do this. And then people would open up a home and be like, oh no, what do we do next? Yeah. And so that's sort of the premise of what, what Rescue Freedom is about is we just saw amazing people around the world doing incredible work who are understaffed, underfunded, undertrained. And then this other big thing that came to life was this underconnected, was hmm. this sense of like traffickers are working across borders all the time. Like we have an amazing partner that's working in Madrid, Spain and has a safe house there. Well, the overwhelming majority of women and girls who are trafficked into Spain are from South America because they already speak the language. Mm. So they're getting, I mean, they're like coming from another hemisphere on we the other side you, of the world. We can world. take you far away from home, but you still understand what's going on there. Yeah. And, and then they're trafficked from North Africa. And so these girls are getting, you know, we had a situation with them where it was like two girls were getting deported. Two rescue girls were getting deported back to one to a North African country, one to a South American country. And this little tiny safe home was trying to wrestle with like, okay, how do we help them? Because we know that the, the organized crime networks who traffic them all the way over here, they've already started circulating word. Like there will be a trafficker waiting at the airport there. That organized crime who, you know, this is the fastest growing criminal enterprise on the planet. Human trafficking is the fastest is that, growing. Is that true? Yeah, it's wow. the second largest after the global drug trade. And it's the second largest. So it's bigger than the global arms trade. You know, this $150 billion industry, there's more slaves right now in this in this present moment than any other time in history. You know, the peak of the transatlantic slave trade, and there's more slaves right now. Wow. And so traffickers have massive incentive, like billions of dollars of together. incentive to work to, together. Yeah. And yet most of those responding are these amazing people mm. that are giving their lives for usually like, 11 square blocks. Like they're gonna give their lives to care for the kids in their community. And that's amazing. And that's what it takes. It takes these people who know the police officers in their area, they know the language, they know the culture, they know how to help these girls get out, but then they know how to work with legal recourse, you know, with the prosecutor's office. To, like the response has to be hyper-local as we say, but it also has to be global. And so, you know, for Rescue Freedom, we started saying, okay, first, like, well, how do we bring the funds? How do we bring the, the program, the trauma, the care? Mm -hmm. But then how do we bring the connection? How do we start connecting this home in Madrid with a home in South America or in Africa or in Eastern Europe where these girls are coming from so that these people aren't fighting alone and so that we can have the best of a global coordinated front against slavery without compromising the importance of hyper-local care? and community engagement. Mm, I love that. And so tell us, what's the reach of Rescue Freedom today, right? So where where are you? What's being accomplished? And obviously there's so much more to do, right? Like I was thinking last night at the fundraiser of how much there is to do when you were talking about the facts. And, and then I go and look at what you guys are doing, which is incredible, but it, it's just, it still feels a little helpless and hopeless, yeah. right? Because there's so much to do and there's so many ways that if you and so many others that are fighting against sex trafficking and human trafficking, you know, whatever, plug up one way that they're doing it, they're gonna open another, you know, because evil is here and, yeah. and it's not going anywhere. But but for the sake of this conversation and trying to remain hopeful, like what what is happening, what has happened? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really important theme of, you know, trying to remain hopeful. Um, yeah, right. You know, the, one of our mantras that's like literally written on the wall in our office that we see every day when we walk in and walk out, that 
is central to everything we do is this phrase that it is not the injustice that drives us, it is the magnitude of hope. Mm. Um, is Yeah, Gosh, we're facing so one of the biggest injustices of our time, absolutely. But for me, it started that, that very first day in India was I wasn't compelled to respond because I saw the darkness. Because after I saw the darkness, I just wanted to tap out. I just wanted to go home. I didn't want to see another red light area. Mm. I was compelled to respond because I saw the hope. I saw the girls who were going to college. And, who are, and so for us, the reason we do something is because we fundamentally believe there is hope. We believe we can see radical transformation. We believe we can see the end of slavery as we know it. And that sounds mm. crazy, but we, we believe that we can yeah. see the end of slavery. So for us, um, to kind of get back to your question, with Rescue Freedom, we're working in 11 countries right now, and the model has continued to expand. And so we look, everything we do is broken into sort of three parts. The first one is rescue and restore, which is kind of the bread and butter. That's where we started. It's yeah. how do we get people out and restore them? And so working through this amazing global network of these local partners who are on the ground in their community, how do we find them? How do we equip them? How do we help them rescue more kids, restore more kids? But then what we started to see was that we need to go a step beyond that because what was happening was these kids and these women, as they were being restored, started to say, well, hey, we want to go back to our hometown and make sure that the parents know what's really going on. We want to prevent the next generation of vulnerable kids from being exploited. And so we kind of launched a second pillar, which is the prevent and protect, is how do we help prevent the next generation? How do we mm. go to the source where there's these vulnerable kids and start educating them and helping to equip them um, to avoid exploitation in the first place? And as we started doing that, the other thing is then as you look at the prevent and protect, you realize that even if you can protect the vulnerable, that the reason that this is all happening to begin with is because there's demand, is because there are millions and millions of men, by and large, who want to buy sex from exploited people. And as long as that's true, and as long as they're willing to pay money to do that, traffickers are gonna find yeah. vulnerable people. So you yeah. can try to prevent the vulnerable people from being exploited, but if you've got an army of men who are waiting and willing to pay to exploit, you're always gonna be a step behind trying to find the next vulnerable people to help yep. prevent. Yep. So then we said, well, we gotta go upstream again and we gotta address demand. Why are all these men buying sex? Why do so many men wanna buy sex from exploited women and children? And so the third pillar of rescue freedom is this um, kind of equip and engage um, of how do we engage culture and equip culture to confront demand. And so that's been sort of the evolution. You know, the rescue and restore is still in many ways our bread and butter. This has been our biggest year yet. I think we've seen over 350 women and children rescued this year. Wow, um, Which has amazing. been amazing that's to amazing. amazing to see. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and as, as, as often as I throw these numbers around, I think the thing that's become so real for me is like, I know, I know a lot of these kids. Like these are individuals whose lives are changed forever. As much as this is a huge issue, it's it's a you know our our sort of tagline is is end slavery one life at a time, because that's that's what it takes. I mean, it is one yeah. person at a time, and every one of those people matters. It's a priceless life, and to look in their eyes, like to look in the eyes of a kid who's come out of a brothel and know that 
Like you have saved them from it's incredible, unbelievable pain. And, and to know that like, it's enough. Every time I look at one of those kids, I feel like that it's enough. It's enough for this moment. But then you look at, you know, but w- we got to do this like millions of more times. So the model of rescue freedom has really grown to look at those three pillars of the, you know, not only the rescue and restore, but how are we preventing and protecting? And then how are we engaging and equipping culture? And, and you kind of referenced uh, at the start of our conversation today, you know, how that ties in with pornography, mm-hmm. for instance. Mm-hmm. So really quickly, you get down to this demand question. Yeah. You know, there was a, a study done recently in the city of Seattle that found that they looked at one website so only one of the many, but they looked at one website and found that every day in the city of Seattle, there were 6,800 men who were shopping on the internet to try to buy sex in person in the city of Seattle. And so if that's the case, that's crazy. if there's 6,800 men- In one city. In one city. Every day. Every day on one of the websites. On one website. And that's not the men who are driving around in those areas. Most people that live in a major city could tell you where like the sketchy part of town is, where there's, you know, where they see women on the streets. Yeah, those are the ones that are actually putting it in their browser trying to find it. Yeah, you know, and a lot of them, it's like the peak search times are from two to four of men at work so that they can- Do it after. They can go right after work so they make it home in time for dinner with their family. But if there's 6,800 men in the city of Seattle- who are looking to buy sex from exploited people. And and most of them, they might not articulate it that way. They might not be willing to admit to themselves that, oh, this is exploited. They, you know, they've built a framework where they can sort of buy into the live, like, oh, I'm sure she's, it's her dream job. She's probably paying her way through law school. She probably loves doing this. She, you know, they'll tell themselves whatever, you know, lie they need to, to absolve themselves. And But if that's the case, you know, we're fighting an uphill battle. So then the question is, well, why? Why are so many men wanting to buy sex? And I think that is probably the question we need to be asking culturally. And this is probably the, I mean, certainly in my lifetime, one of the best times to ask that question because something is happening. I mean, turn on the, if we turn on the news right now and we scan the channels, there's going to be talk about sexual harassment. Yep and yeah, sexual abuse yes. and people yep, leveraging yep. their position of power and men leveraging their sense of entitlement as males to prey on women. Yeah. It's going to be somebody from politics, somebody from Hollywood, somebody yeah. from business, somebody that had a position of power and our culture saying, "Wait a second. Maybe this isn't just a fringe issue of like bad guys who are predators. No. Maybe we've got a cultural problem. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe there's something happening that like men had this entitlement to where, you know, and it's, for me, I see it as a little bit ironic because this is the world, I live in the world where we deal with predatory behavior. And so this cultural reaction that's been coming now in response to, you know, scandals in Hollywood and in politics about sexual abuse and this outcry, we all knew it was there. We all knew there was this undercurrent. And now it's like, people are waking up. And for me, I'm, I'm thinking like, finally, like, guys, this has been happening. It's been all around us all the time. It's happening in our cities all the time. There's 6,800 men every day on one website trying to exploit women who believe fundamentally that if they want to purchase a woman and what they believe about that is that those, when they buy that woman as a commodity, that they're entitled to do to her whatever they want, mm. that they believe that they are entitled to exploit mm. and to prey upon women, that it's ingrained into our culture. And we need to start to ask ourselves, 
Why? Because it doesn't start out of nowhere with some guy just waking up one no. morning and say, I should be able to buy a woman and do whatever I want to her body. Yeah. Like that view comes from that. That has to be cultivated. That has to be a seed that was planted somewhere in their lives that grew and grew and grew until they were willing to let that manifestation play out in a way that risks their career, risks their physical health, risks criminal record, risks their marriage, their family. That's That was a seed that grew and grew and grew to the point of that you, moment. You gave a statistic last night, I think, if I remember well, about the percentage of pornographic acts that are that have some sort of aggression or violence in nature. Yeah. You, what was that number? Or, or did you give one? Yeah. 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 So there was a study that, um, <laughs> I, I always wonder what the researchers were that like proposed this of like, we're going to look at as much pornography as we yeah. can find. And we're going to, we're going to actually like characterize the different scenes that we see. And so what right. they found was that 88% of pornography depicted various acts of violence against women. And that's insane. It is insane. It's absolutely insane. And so like pornography is so ingrained. I mean, the overwhelming majority of young men and a growing number, almost half of young women now right. are starting to consume pornography. And what they're consuming is acts of violence against women. And yeah. so, you know, they say that the average age of first exposure to pornography is like 11 years old. And so if you've got an 11 year old boy or an 11 year old girl who grows up seeing sexuality as acts of violence against women. Mm. It's conditioning both. It's conditioning men to believe that that's what they're supposed to do to women. And it's conduce, conditioning women to believe that that's what they're supposed to receive from men. Mm. And what's really exciting about what's happening in this research being done is people are starting to open their eyes and they're right. saying, oh wait, maybe pornography isn't just another like form of art and freedom of expression that you know, we've had four states now that have declared porn a public health crisis. Yeah. And, you know, there's some amazing TED Talks that have been done by brain, like academic brain yeah. scientists about the effect of like when boys grow up during the formative years of their sexuality and puberty and, and they're seeing acts of violence against women. Yeah. But the porn industry just preys upon it. Yeah. You know, we have this, the biggest joke ever is this idea, you know, that we sort of inherited from the days when you had to buy like a Playboy from a blacked out, like behind a gas station counter and you right. had to be 18 years old. So yeah. technically you're supposed to be over yeah. 18 to consume porn. And so like a lot of websites, you know, it's as somebody types in like a misspelling of a popular website, it takes them to a porn site. And you've got an 11 year old kid that's, you know, meant to type in like Pokemon Go and like misspelled Pokemon. And now it's right. like some horrific. He can't unsee what he's seeing yeah. right now. But at some point with all the pop-up windows, it says like, oh, click here if you're over 18. And that's like, that's the porn industry's like get out of jail card yeah. to say, hey, oh yeah, we know, we, may, we, we verified their age. They clicked yes. Right. And so, you know, I think that Porn is one of the biggest contributing factors to where this demand comes from. Because again, if you have an 11 year old boy who's hasn't hit puberty or, and their sexuality is formed by watching violence against women, it starts this series of, you know, chain reactions, both physiologically and mentally, but also in terms of their cultural perspective on right. what, how do men treat women? Right. What does sexuality look towards women? 
And I think as we start to see that and as the science is showing us the effect and the nature of pornography, it all starts to make sense why there's 6,800 men trying to yeah. buy sex in yeah. Seattle every day yeah. and in every other major city yeah. and why they believe they're entitled to exploitative sexual behavior and to be able to purchase a woman's body and own her and do with her whatever they wish they want to do. Um, yeah. Wow. So, so that's the demand question, which I think our culture is just starting to scratch the surface yeah, on. Yeah, we're actually going to do an entire podcast episode on pornography in a few weeks. I'm meeting with um, uh, Josh Radner, okay. Ted Mosby from yeah. I Met Your Mother. So I'm going to New York to meet with him because he's been a very vocal anti-pornography, used to be in it a ton, has learned all the dangers of it, and has now become a very anti-pornography voice. Because... I, I agree with you. I'm I'm proof of someone who used to watch so much pornography, and it's taken me years and years and years to literally. You talk about the brain stuff, right? Like it literally rewires yeah. how my brain thinks about so many different things, things that are unrelated to pornography altogether. It just rewires how the brain thinks and processes things. So yeah, yeah, it's it's huge, yeah. and it makes you think and feel and do things that, or potentially want to do things that yeah. you would never. We're like, this is not normal. This is not. Yeah. And I can see how the progression of steps, if you don't have people around you helping you and just there's, you're only a number of steps away from doing something like super fucked up. Yeah. If you, because of this innocent, innocent, quote unquote, innocent thing that you saw on a computer screen or whatever. Totally. um, 88%. That's crazy. Yeah. And it's been really, you know, what's interesting is. I think the conversation is starting to come out in a much more kind of informed way so that pornography is in some ways coming into the light yeah. of like, let's just bring it out into the conversation. So it's not, you know, probably when you and I were growing up, there was a sense of like, you know, nobody talks about pornography. Right. Like, totally. it's this, and now it's not a conversation about like, oh, your personal morality is like, oh, is it good or bad is it for you as a person? It's like, it's a very academic in a sense conversation about you do this and here's the destructive nature of it. Not only are there women being trafficked to produce pornography, so there's some data that would show that like one out of every five pornographic images is likely a victim of human trafficking. So not only if you wow. watch porn, are you actually participating in that person's exploitation, yeah. Yeah. which is a whole different side of it. Sure is you might actually be viewing, I mean, I heard from one trafficking survivor that it was like she got out, she, in the States, moved across the country, literally from one coast to the other to get away from traffickers. To the, She wanted to get away from the men, the police officers or the pastors or the business people that had purchased her as a victim of trafficking. But she couldn't escape the porn that she was forced to produce. So she would walk into a business, like a, into somebody a social setting, her. and somebody would be like, "Do I know you? Have we met before? Your face looks really familiar." Or they might even walk up to her and say, "Hey, I saw your video online." Like, and she could wow. not escape the porn that these men had participated in her exploitation, and she couldn't get away from it. So in some ways, the porn became this point of trauma. But I'll never forget one of the first times I talked about porn and the effects of porn. And we created this little two-minute video called Refuse to Click, kind of about... Yeah, I love um, that. Shared it, yeah. Uh, with a mutual friend, yep. you know, Jefferson Bethke. Yep. And, um, but I'll never forget, I showed this at a university in like a third-year business ethics class. I was talking about the business of human trafficking and the supply and the demand and the economic side of sexual exploitation. And I'll never forget um, this this guy. It's You know, this was a big class, you know, obviously men, women. And the first question was this guy, he raised his hands and he's like, dude, I had no idea that like porn and trafficking were connected. And like, so 
I mean, we all know we're going to look at porn. So like, do you have a list of like good porn sites oh my gosh. that you could send me to? So like I can watch porn that like doesn't exploit people. And what I really appreciate about was like the sure. sincerity of the, you know, the fact that like one, he's not a, ashamed or afraid to just like, Hey, let's put this on the table. <laughs> right. Like in my business class, I'm right. going to be the first in guy in front of all my friends and, peers, and my yeah. professor to be like, well, of course I'm going to watch porn. So can you give me like fair trade, like fair trade porn? Like, you know, which of course then led to a conversation about how this idea of like good porn is a total myth. Right. There's right. no such thing. Right. Even if you found some way to like, oh, we only hire Ivy League educated girls who are totally empowered and who didn't grow up getting sexually abused by their stepfather and were not conditioned with abuse and exploitation to the point where they felt like this was the only thing that they could do or if if I'm gonna be exploited, I might as well try to get paid for it, so I'll do porn. Like even if we could only hire girls who like somehow magically had never been abused and really wanted to do this, which it, it just, there aren't that many of, mm. which of course the porn industry will try to find the one right. and, and tee her up as the even if you could find that person, you still have to deal with the brain effects of how it's destroying 11-year-old boys who yep. are becoming, you know, who are being preconditioned with predatory behaviors. Yeah. So I'm really excited to see the conversation coming into the light, to see yeah. states saying, hey, wait a second, this is a public health crisis. We've got boys whose brains are being rewired and we got to address this. So I think we're starting to have the appetite culturally to actually look at trafficking yeah. holistically yeah. Yeah. and to look at gender you know, inequality and predatory behaviors. Yeah. And I think we're seeing glimpses of that on the news every yeah. day these days of like, we realize, uh-oh, we've got a problem. Yeah. And it's not just those who've been trafficked, it's predatory behaviors that have ingrained themselves into manhood in our culture and what men believe that they're entitled to do and how men use their positions of power. Yeah. And that's the conversation that's gonna long-term impact demand. So we, I have three questions left. Um, this is really good. And, and, and for those of you listening, again, I just said that we have a conversation coming up completely around the, the issue, conversation around pornography. So you mentioned something last night that I'm super interested in. You alluded to it, talking about Climb for Captives. Spend a minute or two talking last night you said do what you love to fight what you hate which i believe is a real real thing right you guys did something you love doing right climbing a mountain yep. maybe it's a friend a mutual friend of ours bucky buckstaber down in portland with yeah. fly fishing collaborative yep. he's a pastor doing all this stuff and he he left all of that to start fly fishing collaborative where he can uh fly fish for a living while combating uh, human trafficking and helping these women and, and children uh, recover and be restored. So I deeply believe I'm doing that right now. So talk about that real quickly, because I think that's a really important, it's something that will be hard, for, I think, for people to grasp. They're like, no, like work isn't supposed, a lot of people are conditioned to think work isn't supposed to be fun. Uh, I tried to pursue what I was passionate about, but that didn't work out. So now I'm in my nine to five. Talk about that for a minute. Yeah. Do what you love to fight what you hate. Yeah, a friend of mine in Seattle is an artist that um, started trying to find ways to leverage the arts to help kids heal. And and so that that phrase kind of came out of, of a relationship with an artist that was like, you know, trying to trying to figure out how to use the arts, and and so that's kind of what got what got us thinking. And in the early years of Climb for Captives, he had sort of said a variation on that phrase, and then the climbers all latched on to this idea of. How do we do what we love to fight what we hate? So the simple idea is it, again, kind of came up by accident where we started doing these climbs and then turns out a lot of people don't want to climb big old gnarly icy mountains. Sure. And so 
we had someone that was like, well, hey, can I do a bike ride instead of a climb? Yeah. And we're like, yeah, we'll give you the tools to do that. And we'll tell you kind of how we did the climb, but the principles apply. And then somebody said, well, we want to do a dinner party. Like I love to cook. I don't want to climb a mountain totally. or go do a bike ride. But what if I did every month like a five course meal with, I'll get some of my foodie friends, we'll cook together and then we'll invite people as like a date night. And yeah. so we'll get 20 people to come and then we'll just ask them to donate what they would have spent on a date night. Yeah. And they've raised like over $10,000 just doing these dinner parties. And so there's this element of what do you what do you love to do? What are you already doing? And how do you leverage that to fight the injustice that you hate? How do you do what you love to fight what you hate? But then the other thing we started to see, my, my job right before I, I started with Rescue Freedom was in the in the marketing and PR world. And what I realized was there's a ton of companies, like big companies yep. like the Microsofts of the world that pay their employees to go volunteer. Yep. And I'll never forget working with this amazing PR company that is like one of the best in the world at doing what they do. It's the second largest, you know, privately held PR company in the world, offices all over the place. And our people were getting paid massive dollars by like the biggest companies in the world to do media strategy and publicity campaigns and social media consulting. And then when it came to using our paid time off, yep. like yep. volunteer paid time yep. off Nobody. to help causes, people would go and like volunteer to walk dogs for the animal shelter. And it's not that there's anything wrong with walking right. dogs. That's great. But it just struck me because I was like, at one point there was a group going to a a homeless shelter in the city of Seattle to serve, you know, to serve a meal. And I know people that work there and I'm thinking, man, they've got their like Christmas campaign coming up. They're doing all this. And we've got a huge group, like the value of our time from like a media strategy and publicity and marketing. And we're taking these highly paid professionals and we're going and we're serving a meal. Yeah. What if we actually help them with their media. Right. Like most nonprofits, totally. I'll tell you right now, like need desperate help with so media much. strategy or search engine optimization or, you know, community engagement. Or, you know, I had a guy at this event last night that you were at that came up to me after and was like, hey, I'm a software guy. I do measurement and evaluation. If ever you need like integrated software systems for how you track like programs, progress, like I'd love to help you think through data integration. Like, that's amazing, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like not, so yeah. not, you got these, literally you could have a scenario where you take a group of PR professionals who are experts in, you know, community engagement, who go and walk dogs for an animal shelter that's about to go out of business because they don't know how to tell their story, right? Right, And it's totally. like, oh, yeah. we just missed an opportunity. So I really get excited about the idea of or how that we guy start. That approached you last night, maybe he signs up for 30 bucks a month, but yeah. he, maybe he doesn't do that yeah. and offers his services this way. And yeah. helps you guys to the tune of thousands exactly. of hours and tens of thousands of dollars. Exactly. Right? Yeah. You know, we see that with like the obvious one is like lawyers doing pro bono work. Right. It's like, oh yeah, I'll help with that. But it, for some reason, there's certain industries where maybe they're, they're more conditioned, like a lawyer knows the value of their services, knows that every nonprofit needs it. But like most people fundamentally, like in, in my previous job, it wasn't that people were making a conscious choice like, oh, we're super good at promoting things, but we don't want to help that nonprofit promote. We just want to walk dogs. They just, it didn't, it was like, it didn't even cross their minds. So part of it is the problem on nonprofits. Nonprofits haven't done a great job sure. of telling people, we, we've just sort of sent the, the message of like, hey, we want your money. Like, we don't want your ideas. Yep. We don't want your creativity. Yep. We don't want, we just want your money. Yeah. And so that's on the nonprofit sector. But the other side is like, we need to think 
about how do we give more of ourselves to the causes we care about? Like I, I want people who are not just donors. I want abolitionists. Yeah. Like the abolitionist movement of the of the 1800s, yeah. it worked because people became abolitionists. Yep. They were abolitionist businessmen and women. They were abolitionist pastors. They were abolitionist politicians. It became a core of their identity. Mm. And they all thought about how do I leverage my platform, my influence, my expertise to get creative, to fight slavery. And yeah. that's why we were able to change the laws and to change the policy and to break the back economically of you know countries and communities dependent on slavery to survive is that we need people who, we don't need people to go qu quit their jobs and try to all work for nonprofits. Right. No, totally. We need people who say, I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna do what, I, what I'm good yep. at, I'm gonna do what I love, and I'm gonna become an abolitionist with the platform that I already have. I have my coin in my pocket, by the way. I love it. It's gonna stay right there. Awesome. And I'm gonna whip it out. It's funny, you gave the example last night of the the men who used to bring it out and put it on top of like the cigar box. Yeah. I was talking to Ed on the way out and I was like, I smoke cigars all the time. I was yeah. like, I'm gonna do that, bring it out and just put it down and yeah. just see if anybody asks me about it. Yeah. So that I can tell them, yeah. Absolutely. I, I'm an abolitionist. Yep, uh, and, I love and you, it. And you should be too. I love it. Um, no, that's really helpful. And I've also heard uh, statistics that are super high about, so you just talked about the problem of you know highly trained experts going to walk dogs. There's still a huge percentage of people that never even take advantage of that paid time off, right? And that's a whole different conversation. Oh, yeah. It's like 75% of them feel like, well, I can't, no, no, no. Like I'm in the business of impressing my boss and making them see that I'm like a, 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 a valuable asset so that I never get laid off or fired. Yeah. So they still show up to work, right? It's paid time off. Yeah. The business says, go be, do good in your neighborhood. Yeah. And they never even, and they don't even use it. They don't it. even go yeah. walk the dog yeah. as an expert, whatever, lawyer or yep. PR person. They just sit in the office and are like, well, hopefully the boss walks by and sees me here yeah. working hard exactly. on the day off they gave me. And it's like, no, go and use yeah. what you're good at. You know, it's funny. The US government, actually did a study on volunteerism in America. And what they found was that only 25% of Americans will ever volunteer in any capacity. That's amazing. And I mean, that that's amazing. like any gift of service to your rotary club. That's, you know, walking Soup dogs. For the, that's anything, including people that go to churches and like, you wow. know, volunteer at a church. I mean, that's 20, so 25%. But you know, what was interesting is they actually said, once they realized that they're like, well, I wonder what Americans are doing. So they actually did the study on are people doing what they're actually good at. And what they found was 25% of Americans volunteer. And of those 25, it's roughly about 10% of those people actually use their skills when they volunteer. So if you have a group of 100 Americans, between two and four of them will ever once use something they're naturally good at or professionally trained at to help a nonprofit. That's insane. Isn't that, isn't that heartbreaking? Like Very heartbreaking. We need to talk more about this offline because yeah. I have so many thoughts. I'm actually doing some... I'm doing a lot of thinking about that very thing <laughs> yeah. because I'm so, I feel so burdened to help people. Um, the way that I describe it is I have three goals in life. One is to help people give a damn. One is to help people live radically generous lives. And one is to help them live meaningful lives. And the meaningful part is what you just said, do like combat what you hate by doing what you love. Yeah. Most people never get there. Or when they actually do feel like, oh, I'm going to go out and volunteer, they do something completely out of left field, right? Yeah. Like something that doesn't, it's, they're not good at it. Yeah. They've never even thought about it before. It's it's kind of reactionary. Yep. And they give up so much like meaningful work and energy doing something that they aren't good at. Totally. They're not using what they're God-given ability to do X, Y, or Z yeah, to actually make the world a better place. That's crazy. Okay, we need to wrap up here. 
why do you do it? Why do you give a damn? Sum it up in three or four sentences. Like, like if you were to, if you were just to narrow it down, what is the reason or what are the reasons that you even give a damn? Because you're, it's, you're 35. You've had success so far, it seems, in a lot of the things you've done. Like you could probably have way more financial success doing a number of other things, but you've chosen to do uh, climb for captives, rescue freedom, a number of other things that directly impact the lives of so many men and women and children. So why do you do it? Like, what's the impetus? What are the motivations behind it? Wow. Um, that's a great question. I think for me, it stems from this revelation that I had that second day in India of the fact that there is so much hope. Mm. And I want to live in a world where hope is possible and where hope is unfolding all around us all the time. Um, I want my kids to grow up in a world where when they see injustice, their reaction is not sadness and brokenness. Their reaction is this sense of like, I see this injustice and I am waiting on bated breath to see how like transformation and hope unfolds. Mm. This sense that like, yes, this is sad, this is heartbreaking, but everybody look at this because if, if we can turn our eyes to this, we will see transformation unfold in a way that will not only transform the injustice of those lives, but it'll transform our lives in the process. Like these kids have given way more to me than I could have ever given to them. They have transformed my understanding of myself, of my faith, of the fact that that there there is so much hope despite the worst, most suppressing circumstance. So I would say the biggest motivation is this hope of I believe fundamentally that transformation is possible and that it's not that far away. Like it's really not that far away. I have seen the best sides of humanity in the face of the worst sides of humanity. And Amazing. when that comes, it is such an unstoppable force that that the darkness just fades. Dumbledore, uh, in Prisoner of Azkaban during the first dinner of the school year, he says this, and it just, it, it made me, as soon as he started talking, I was like, that quote. He says, happiness can be found in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Right? There's tons of darkness. There's tons of shit, tons of evil, so many reasons to despair. Yeah. And what we need to realize is that there are these light switches. There yeah. are these, we have the matches, there's the candle, go light the freaking candle. Absolutely. Like we have the ability to make an impact. And sure, the darkness is vast and we're like, what, my little light, like, what, what is it doing? Like, but if all of us stopped listening to the despairing voices Absolutely. and actually started turning on our lights, yep. it'd be a lot brighter. Absolutely. We'd actually, that's my motivation for doing the things that I'm doing is, and I, it sounds like you would agree, is you're approaching this from the, with, with the strength and with the hope that human trafficking and sex trafficking can actually be defeated. Like we can do it in our lifetime. Absolutely. We can, Yeah. right? And if you don't think that way and then partner and build and create, then it's never gonna get accomplished. Yeah. Because there are so many reasons to despair. Yeah, absolutely. If yeah. you would have just done that night in India and just seen all of like the taxis and the girls being dragged into the alleyways, like, but you went the next day. Yep. You saw the light. Yeah, you, absolutely. Those people that you were with basically turn on the switch for you and you're yep. like, oh. Yep. There's Absolutely, hope. it's amazing. Yeah, that phrase, and and I'll just you know again repeat the the phrase that's on the wall that we walk by every day when we yes. come and go in our office is that it is not the injustice that drives us; it's the magnitude of hope. 
and it's tempting to get caught up in all the injustice of the world, but like for us, and it's not just hope, it is a magnitude of hope. I mean, yeah. it is an overwhelming force that is pushing back the injustice and the darkness. And that's why we do what we do. We really believe that there's hope. Last question. Yep. Someday you're going to die. Hopefully it's many, many years from now. Um, the hypothetical part of this scenario is that for some odd reason, I've been asked to give your eulogy. So all of your friends, your family, your wife, your kids, um, the people you work with at Rescue Freedom, the, all the men and women that have climbed for captives, all the women and children that you have helped over the years, they're all there. It's a packed room. And they've all come together to celebrate your celebrate and mourn your life. And again, for some hypothetical reason, I've been asked to give you eulogy. What do you hope that I'll say about you on that day? What do you hope are the words mm. that are spoken over your life? Hmm. Wow, that's that's probably the question. It is. It really is. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think for me, a lot of this stems from a new understanding of the love that I believe God has for all of us. Mm. Um, it would probably be something to the effect of like, Jeremy knew how loved he was by God and he spent his life trying to make sure others did as well. Um, something, something, to that effect. something to that effect. And that would start certainly first and foremost with my, my wife and three kids of like, I'd want them to know, know that first yeah. of like, wow, dad spent his life making sure we knew how well loved we were by God and, and by him. And that that would sort of ripple out from there, that, the, that my community would know that, that it would, you know, that it would be well, well played out at home, well played out in my community. And the ripples would go out all the way out to, you know, every one of these women and children that we work with, um, mm. that it would, that it, that it would stem from that. Cause ultimately at the end of the day, love is, love is the most powerful force in the universe and, yeah. and, and all hope stems from, from love. So. Yeah. Well, that would be an amazing legacy. You're well on your way of accomplishing that. I hope you continue to pursue that. Where can people find out more about you and uh, Rescue Freedom and all the work that you're doing? If they go and search for one or two things, yeah. what, what do you want them to go do? Yeah, Rescue Freedom it would be the great starting point. So rescuefreedom.org. Um, and then certainly on on social, on Facebook, Instagram. Um, so rescuefreedom.org, you know, at Rescue Freedom. You can find everything there and follow us from there. And that, that'll link out through, you know, with our Climb for Captives and this summer, our big 10-year anniversary campaign to yeah. get people to leverage their their passions and pursuits. If to somebody's like, oh, I want to do one of those, a, a version of Climb for Captives, how would they even go about starting to like get in touch with you and get yeah. the resources you guys have uh, created? Yeah, so at rescuefreedom.org, we have an initiative that we call um, those people are freedom fighters. Mm. And so you can become a freedom fighter, which basically we have all the tools online to create a campaign. And so all the tools you can, you know, set up right there. You could say, Hey, I'm going to do a, my own campaign. I'm going to go and, you know, I'm going to do a million jumping jacks and, you know, get somebody to sponsor me for 10 cents a jumping jack. Or I mean, we've had yeah, the craziest campaigns, right? And so, or you can do a team. You can say me and 10 friends are going to go bike, across the state. So you, uh, w with our Freedom Fighter platform, you can create a campaign and invite 10 friends and you each get your own little website on your team campaign, set team goals, individual goals. So rescuefreedom.org, Freedom Fighters. Um, that's the best way to kind of learn more, find out um, and get involved. And, and even to create a Climb for Captives campaign, you could say, hey, we're gonna climb the mountain in our state. We wanna do a Climb for Captives. And so we're gonna, I'm gonna recruit teams. We're gonna go, I'm gonna get 10 friends. We're gonna go hike up the high point in our state this summer. 
and help get kids out of slavery. So Awesome. Jeremy, this has been fantastic, truly. Uh, thank you for joining me, and I'm excited to continue to follow y'all's journey and participate in ways that I can. And thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for your heart to bring light into dark places and to engage your community. Um, you've got an amazing community of people that have participated mm. in this podcast, your subscribers, and really feel honored to get to participate and want to thank you and your community, all those who follow you and this podcast who participate and subscribe. Um, it's amazing to see the, the community of people that you've built to rally around important causes to bring hope and love to the world. So thank you. Awesome. And thanks we'll to all continue those who are, and make sure you yeah. continue as well. Awesome. Thank thanks. you. Friends, thank you so much for joining Jeremy and me for our conversation today. I hope you were encouraged. I hope you were challenged. I hope you heard some things in there that rattled you to the core. I know that that happened to me several times during my conversation with Jeremy in that hotel room a few weeks ago. There were times when I had goosebumps. There were times when I had chills. There were times when I was angry. There were times when I got just so overwhelmed with the information and the stories I was hearing. And I hope a little bit of that happened to you today. You can follow Rescue Freedom on all the social media platforms at Rescue Freedom. You can follow Jeremy on all the social media platforms at Jeremy Valorand. And you can go Google them. Go look up what they're doing. Become a partner. Get involved. Figure out ways that you can take part in what's going on and be a part of the solution. Be a part of helping Rescue Freedom eradicate human trafficking in the world today. If we partner, if we help, if we collaborate with them, and if we stop making excuses for not doing that, maybe we can see some of these things eradicated. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you loved the podcast, it would mean the world to me if you'd go leave us a five-star review. It does a lot. It truly, truly does. There are so many people listening to this podcast right now, and we only have 55 reviews I would love for that number to change after this week. It truly does help us. There are other ways to help as well. You can share yourself listening to this podcast episode on social media. Take a screenshot, share it on your Instagram, share it on your Instagram story, share it on Twitter, share it on Facebook so that people can see what you're consuming and how it's affecting you. And lastly, you can help us by contributing on patreon.com forward slash let's give a damn. You can become a patron on Patreon dot com forward slash let's give a damn dollar a month five dollars a month ten dollars a month twenty five dollars a month any little bit helps us make more podcasts none of it goes into my pocket every cent goes back into making more podcasts i hope this has been helpful i love that you've joined me i love that you're here thank you for participating thank you for being part of the let's give a damn family until next week bye bye